But as this morning we look into our, our text, um, we're here in, in Romans chapter 10 once again, and uh, we're looking at uh, basically God's way of righteousness, as we see here in, in Romans chapter 10. And a lot of these messages may seem uh, repetitive in nature, some of the content may be repetitive to your ears, but I just want you to know that it is um, basically right there in the text. And we can see it for ourselves. And so Paul, in a very uh, unique way, kind of repeats a lot of what he wants to get across so that people clearly can understand uh, what the message of the gospel is. But today we're in in part three of this little series, and we want to look at verses 11 to 15. And so if you look in your Bibles with me, and uh, I want to begin reading there in uh, verse uh, 5, and we'll read all the way down to verse 15. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will, you, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Last week, just way quick review, we looked at uh, Romans 5 to 10. And we, we looked there basically at the premise, first of all, in order to be saved, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself. You can't do it by keeping God's law. You can't do it by being religious. You can't do it by coming to church or praying before your meals or reading your Bible. None of that saves you. And uh, we looked at that very clearly. Um, And then in verse 6 to 8, we looked at to be saved, we have to recognize that what Christ has done for us, we could never have done for ourselves. That we have to go outside of ourselves in order to be saved. You know, you hear people today, well, I just got to get away and find myself. Well, that's not a good thing. You know, the last time I found myself, it was a sinning individual. (laughs) And that's not a good thing. So, you know, we need to make sure that we're looking for the right thing. And we can't look within ourselves. Salvation is not within ourselves. It's always outside of us. It's in the work of Christ, the completed work of Christ on Calvary. He's already done the work for you. And then the third thing we looked at quickly was to be saved, you must truly believe in Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. And we made some distinctions there about that. But it's important to understand that, you know, we don't just have a gospel message that some generic message will just, you know, just believe and and you'll be saved. Say this prayer and and that will suffice. Raise your hand and, you know, uh, you'll be saved. All those things that people use sometimes as mechanisms to get people to respond to the gospel, you may have been saved that way. God can use whatever. But at the same time, that's probably not the best way to go about it. That's not what is really portrayed for us in the New Testament. I don't ever see Jesus with people behind him saying, oh, you want to follow me? Come here and let's hear it. Say the sinner's prayer. And now there, there you go. You're one of my followers. Now go and Go out and have a good time. No, that's not what Jesus ever did. And so, you know, today we want to look at this idea of this good news of the gospel and how it is good news for all. It truly is. Um, You know, if you had a relative, long lost uncle, who was a billionaire, and he died, 
And in his will, he left you $10 million. But you didn't know it. No one contacted you to tell you about this good news. That doesn't mean that that $10 million is not yours. It's still yours. But the fact is, is that you don't have the information clearly to understand that, you know what? This was gifted to me. And see, the bad news is that so many people don't understand what the good news is. Because nobody ever told them. Nobody ever told them about Christ. There's a a website called the Joshua Project, and it, it gives you a lot of different statistics concerning worldwide missions. Um, You know, there's about 2 billion people of the world's population who are presently cut off from any access to the gospel. They don't have the pleasure of coming to church and hearing the gospel preached. They don't have the pleasure of having a Bible. Um, They're presently cut off altogether. Uh, Another way to look at it, this website points out that there's 16,789 people groups in the world. And basically 6,954, that's about 41%, are still unreached. That's a lot of people. An unreached or, or least reached people is a people group among which there is no community among themselves who are believing Christians and have a ability to evangelize amongst themselves. Of those almost 7,000 people groups, 2,087 are over 50,000 in population. And out of every dollar that we give to Christian causes in any way, this blew me away, less than one penny goes toward the pioneering church planting effort amongst people groups like those. Less than one penny out of every dollar. Um, You can look that up, information up there for yourself. But here today, you know, it kind of puts in perspective Paul's message for us today. He wants us to see here that since the gospel is good news for all, we must proclaim it to all. We must proclaim it to all. Paul was trying here to set the stage for his journey through Rome where he could really get support and garner support um, for the, for the missions to the, the Gentiles in Spain that he was looking forward to. And to do that, he basically had to deal with two criticisms that people were offering him. First of all, they didn't think his message jived with what was in the Old Testament. They said, wait a minute, there's a, there's a problem here. What you're saying doesn't doesn't agree with the Old Testament. And secondly, that his ministry to the Gentiles erased what the Jews saw as a fundamental distinction between those two groups. They had a problem with him reaching out to the Gentiles. And so what Paul does is he begins to cite the Old Testament in our text repeatedly. You see it in verse 11. You see it in verse 13. You see it in verse 15. You also can see it in verse 16, 18, 19, 20, 21. What's he doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. Why? Because he wants his hearers, he wants his listeners, the readers of this letter, to understand that, you know what, everything he's saying is basically coming out of the Old Testament. That's the basis of his message, right out of the Jewish scriptures. And what he wants them to understand is simply this, is that the same Lord is Lord of all people. And he hasn't given a different message for different people groups. He's given one message for everybody. And you have to go by that message in order to be saved. And so in verses 11 to 13, Paul makes his point that the gospel is good news for all. Good news for all. And then in verses 14 to 15, he basically says, that's why you have to proclaim it to all. That's our job. That's our task. That's our ministry. That's what we've been called to as Christians. So look at those first couple verses there, verses 11 to 13. The gospel is good news for all. 
For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bounding in the riches of, for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In that verse 11, Paul cites from Isaiah 28, 16. And in, in, in chapter 9, verse 33, he cited that same verse more fully. But here he only kind of cites parts of it. And um, in verse, chapter 10, verse 12, he explains why his broader application is valid here. Because the Lord is the Lord of all people. Jew and Gentile are alike. See, that was a fresh message back then. A lot of uh, Jews couldn't understand that. They thought, wait a minute, we're God's chosen people. What are you reaching out to these dogs for? That's what they consider Gentiles. And then to show that he wasn't making it up, he puts there in verse 13 what literally comes right out of of Joel uh, uh, 2.32 there, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. His point is that the gospel message, the good news of the gospel is for all people, both Jew and Gentile, if they will respond to it. So all people have one primary need. We all have the same need, beloved, to be saved before we die. <laughs> the Bible says that there's, there's, you live, you die, and then comes the judgment. And our primary need is not to pay our rent or to, you know, to feed our family or to put clothes on our back. The primary need of any person on the face of the earth is to understand that they need to be saved before they die, before they're going to face any kind of judgment. In verse 11 to 13 there, he says, whoever. And in verse 12, he says, there's no distinction. What's he saying here? He says, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned, in Romans 3, 23, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. See, he gave us the bad news before he gave us the good news. The bad news was we're all in the same sinking boat together. We're all, we're all covered with sin. That's who we are outside of Christ. The Bible calls us slaves to sin. See, you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, well, you know, I can do whatever I want. I have a, I have a free will. I can. No, you don't. You're a slave to sin, the Bible calls you. And after you're a Christian, you're a slave to Christ. See, the bad news is that we're all tainted by sin. But here in chapter 10, he brings up the good news. The good news is there's no distinction. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what social economic class you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of education you have or what you do for a living or how many kids you have or where you live. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that you have to conclude that your primary need is that you need to be saved from your sin and from the judgment that follows. See, that's how you receive the abundant riches of God's grace. When you call upon the Savior. See, the problem is we we forget that before people will call out to God to save them, they have to understand what kind of deep trouble they're in. See, that's why certain evangelistic tactics like, you know, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not real biblical. Because you know what? I don't know if God has a wonderful plan for your life or not. (laughs) It really depends what you do with the Savior. Because ending up in hell for all eternity under the judgment, righteous judgment of God because you rejected the Savior does not sound like a wonderful plan in my book. So we have to allow people to understand the problem that they face. They have to realize that they're in deep trouble before they'll cry out and be saved. I mean, all people are guilty before God. All people are headed for death and judgment. And all people need, the Bible says, to be saved. 
See, to me, that's kind of freeing in a way when you talk about evangelism, when you're out sharing your faith. Because, you know, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. It could be the president of your company. You know what his greatest need is? To be saved. It could be the president of the United States. You know what his greatest need is? To be saved. I mean, very clearly, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic background they have, what kind of education. The same message applies to all. And it's easy to be intimidated by people who have degree after degree after degree after their name. And you think, well, I don't even want to talk to them about it because what if they start talking about evolution or what if they start talking about the Bible full of contradictions or what if they start talking about something that I don't know the answer to? It's pretty simple. I answer those questions. You know what? That's a really good question. And I, I can research that for you. But to get back to what we were talking about, and, and you take it right back to the gospel. See, there's, there's smoke screens that people put up because they don't want to deal with the real need. That they're sinners and they stand in judgment before a holy God. They have passed in current sins that have alienated them from God. That have created problems in their lives. And their number one need in life is to be saved before they face death and judgment. I read an illustration of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was preaching to a congregation at an Anglican church in Oxford. And, you know, if you know anything about Oxford, I mean, they're pretty high-class intellectual people. And he preached to them as if he would have preached anywhere else. Now, if you know anything about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a brilliant man. But his messages were pretty gospel-centric and pretty simple And after the service, it was announced by the host that, hey, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is going to be over here in this little hall, and if you want to ask me any questions, you know, further, you can. And he got there, and he thought, well, maybe just a couple people want to talk. Well, the whole room was packed of these intellectual people. The first question came from this bright, young student. He stood up and He said he spoke with such grace. It's almost probably was a a debater at the university. And after paying a couple compliments to the preacher, he said that he had one great difficulty as a result of his sermon. He could really he could he could not see, but that that sermon might not equally uh, uh, go as well been delivered to a congregation of farm laborers or anyone else. In other words, why did you come and preach that kind of sermon to us? Don't you know who we are? That was a simpleton sermon is what he was saying, basically. And as the young man sat down, the whole room started laughing. Dr. Jones erupted with laughter. Dr. Jones replied that he was most interested in that question, but really could not see the questioner's Difficulty because he regarded both undergraduates and graduates of Oxford University as being just ordinary, common, human clay and miserable sinners like everybody else. (laughs) I don't think he won a lot of friends that day. But their need, even though their education was great, was the same as the farm laborer or anyone else. And so he had preached that message deliberately. See, since everyone is a sinner, the main need that you have is to be reconciled to your creator before you die. And it's important to keep that in mind even if you're talking to a, quote, good person. You may be talking to somebody who's very religious. You may be talking to somebody who thinks that they got it all, you know, packaged up nice and neat and everything's good to go. But look at their life. Does it add up? 
You know, a good person will basically compare himself to someone else. I know before I got saved, the people I can compare myself to were my brothers. Why? Because my brothers were really bad people (laughs) before they knew Christ. They were just rambunctious, rowdy guys. And I always said, well, I'm not like them. I don't need need this. I'm not like them. And finally, God said, it doesn't matter whether you're like them or not. Are you like me? Are you perfect? Are you saying you're perfect? Are you holy? Oh, no. Well, that's what you need to be. That's what Jesus said. You want to see the Father, you've got to be perfect. Is he's perfect. Very clearly. See, the, 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 the comparison is not, I'm not like other people. You know, I'm sure when God, one day when I die and I stand before God, somehow he'll sort this out and, and see that my heart was meaning, well-meaning, and I tried my best. That, none of that is going to matter, beloved. The only thing that's going to matter when you stand before God one day is what you did with the Savior, what you did with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you put your faith, your trust in Him for your salvation? Or did you try to work this out on your own? So we need to be reminded of that. The law was given to us not so we could keep it clearly, but to show us our need of a Savior. So that it would expose our sin. Secondly here, all people need one message. The good news that whosoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. See, a lot of people have this messed up. You know, it says here that they will not be disappointed. Literally, it means they will not be put to shame. It doesn't refer to some psychological term, but rather to being put to shame with a guilty verdict at the judgment. That's what he's talking about. It means that at the judgment seat of God, God will vindicate the one who believes in Christ. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about somehow if whatever you were thinking in your heart and in your mind at any one time could just be broadcast somehow for everybody else to see and hear? I don't know about you, but my day would not go well (laughs) if that were the case. Because there are times in my life where my heart is desperately wicked and evil and I think some pretty bad things. And to even think that someone else would be able to see that or hear that is so shameful. See, we have to be reminded that God sees and hears all. Whether it's spoken or not. That's why Christ, when he came and confronted the Pharisees, that's why he communicated to them, oh yeah, well, you may not have committed the act of adultery, but have you ever lusted for another woman in your heart? You may not have literally murdered somebody, but have you hated your brother? See, he turned it where? To the conscience. Because they were feeling pretty self-righteous in their own religious uh, environment. I mean, I think we'd all die of embarrassment if what was going on in our heart and mind at any one time was just broadcast to everyone. Hebrews 4.13 says that God knows our every thought. I'll never forget, I heard this, uh, it was one of the pastors down at uh, Grace Community Church. And he was uh, counseling a young couple for, to get married. And the young couple messed up. They sinned physically with each other. And they came in to tell him. And, and they were kind of distraught. And they were there trying to confess to him what had happened. And, and uh, once they kind of said what had happened, you know, he said, yeah, okay. So I know. He said, you know. Well, he goes, somebody saw you. They're like, what? Somebody saw us? Are you nuts? Are you who who saw us? And they begged for him to plead and, and tell him. And finally he said, God saw you. You know what their response was? Oh, okay. We thought you meant really somebody else, like somebody physically saw. See, where where's our where's our heart? Where's our mind? Doesn't it bother us at all that God knows our every thought, our every deed, everything that's done behind the curtain that we don't want anybody else to see? God sees it clearly. 
That in and of itself should be convicting enough for us to come to Christ so that all those things could be, all those sins could be paid for. Paul explains here in verse 12 that the good news applies equally to the religious Jew and to the pagan Gentile. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. There's a lot of religious people in our churches today and in our world today that are probably going to end up in hell one day. I think when we get to heaven, we'll be just surprised. First of all, who, who is there? <laughs> you made it? <laughs> Whoa, man, I can't believe you made it. But then on the other hand, where's so-and-so? Wow, really? They're not here? I mean, I think that's going to be a striking contrast some think that the Lord refers to the, the God and the God the Father here. But since Paul has just said that Jesus is Lord, and since the context here of these verses, 11 to 17, is all about believing in Jesus, it highly refers to Jesus, I would say. He is the Lord of all. He abounds in riches for all those who call upon him, it says. If anyone calls upon the name of Jesus... He will be saved. Paul loves to talk about this. He loves to talk about the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. He says it over and over. I just listed a couple there in your notes, but let me just read a couple of them. Romans 2, 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience and knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. We, we sang that verse earlier. In Romans 9, 23, it says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that... You, through his poverty, might become rich. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, wonderful text of Scripture. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Or Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 3, 8, to me the very least of all saints, Paul says, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Or Ephesians 3.16 where he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. See the point here in our text is that no matter how sinful your past may be if you simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you call upon his name, you will be saved. He will do it out of the abundance of his riches, of his grace. And that news applies to every person on the face of the earth, from every race, from every walk of life. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. So the, the primary need of everybody is to be saved before they die and face judgment. All people need one message, the good news that whosoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Third thing here, see, all people need to hear that there is one way to be saved. This is not politically correct today to say this. There's only one way to be saved, and that's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no back door, folks. There's no other alternative. Well, what about these people? You know, they're really faithful to their religion. So be it. If they're not going to Christ, they'll be lost forever in, in, in hell for all eternity. I don't care how nice they are or how good they are. Because their primary need is what? To be saved from their sin. See, Paul expresses the way to be saved here in, in two ways. He says to believe in him in verse 11 and then also to call upon him or to call upon his name in verses 12 and 13. And in verse 14, he kind of distinguishes between the two. But here in 11 11 to 13, he uses them to mean the same thing. To believe in Christ means to rely on or to trust in him 
as the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He died, theological term, as a propitiation. He, he was the atoning sacrifice which satisfied God's wrath for all who believe in him. So that God can now be both just because the penalty was paid and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. See, it's not one day God's just going to look at your sin and go, well, it doesn't really matter. Come on in. I'm just going to be a nice guy. He can't do that. God, that would be against who God is. Because where there's sin, there has to be penalty, a penalty paid for sin. Someone has to bridge that gap. That's why Christ came to earth. He was incarnate. He came. He took on a human body. He lived 30-some years here on this earth as the very Son of God. And then he went to the cross and he laid himself bare there for all the world to see that, you know what, I'm giving myself as a sacrifice for the sins of all those who would cry out and call upon my name. See, I don't believe Jesus died on the cross a general death. I believe Jesus died a specific death. He died for those who would put their faith, their trust in him. To believe in Christ means that you stop believing in yourself. You stop believing in your own good works. You stop believing in your own way of salvation. And you look to Christ for hope and for eternal life. So in verse 13 here, Paul cites Joel 2.32. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter quotes that same verse in Acts chapter 2 verse 21 on the day of Pentecost. What's it mean to call upon the Lord? To call upon his name? It really means to call upon him for everything that he is. What's his name stand for? All of his attributes. It implies that you're, you're calling on one who is, is able to meet you in a time of trouble, in a time of need. And he says the result of that is you will be saved. That implies that the person was in need. If they had to be saved from something, there must have been a need in their life. The need was to be saved from that day of judgment. But both terms here imply that one calling out has nothing in himself to offer God. That's why you're calling out to God. Because you don't have any other way. You're, you're, you're against the wall. Your back's against the wall. You're flat on the floor. You can't do anything else but cry out to God. Like the, the man in the New Testament who just, just cried out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the, the eloquence of your words when you're in that kind of a situation doesn't really matter. Think about it. Maybe there were times in your life where you were in need. Maybe you were little and you were <clears throat> lost or maybe you were drowning in a pool or, or maybe something happened and there was a need and you needed to cry out for help. Even as an adult, maybe you needed to cry out for help. I don't think you said, man, this is a really bad situation. I need some help. Now, let's see. How am I going to say this? I could just cry out for help, but that, you know, how would I say it? Let's see. Help, help, help. I mean, how would, you wouldn't do that. I mean, that's a silly illustration, I know. But what would you do? It wouldn't matter. The words you used, you wouldn't matter. What you, you would just want to get somebody's attention because you were in such a, a, a time of need and trouble that you needed help. See, that's what the Bible tells us, is that we are in such a bad place as far as our sin goes. The only person, the only power that we can cry out to is God. And when we do it from a broken and contrite and sincere heart, God answers that prayer. See, if we come to God thinking that somehow we're going to help God save us, 
then we're not broken yet. We're not broken yet. We have to be at a point of loss where we realize, wow, there is, there's no other place to go. I'm in a real fix here. That's why a lot of people, you see it with deathbed conversions almost. They're at the end of their life. It doesn't matter what kind of life they live. Some, some people live very famous, wealthy. <clears throat> they get to the end and they realize, wow, this is it. All the money in the world can't buy me out of this fix. And you hear stories of them calling out to God to save them, to forgive them in their greatest time of need. That's what God wants from us. He wants a heart that's broken before him. See, then he can bring the joy and the grace and the forgiveness. You know, we want to go out to a lost and dying world and tell them about all the good things Jesus has to offer before we tell them the bad news about where they're going, where they're ending up in hell, and that they're in sin. If you were on an airplane and and you got on the airplane and the plane's flying fine, and the next the guy next to you, you know, started putting on a parachute, you'd think he was nuts. That would just be weird. But in a couple minutes, if the plane started going down and he made his way to the door and opened the door and jumped out with his parachute, you'd realize, wow, this guy knew something that I didn't know. Yeah, he looked a little crazy at the time, but you know what? Now it makes perfect sense. But then it may be too late. So our sin was crucified with Christ. That's, that's Paul's message here. He wants us to understand that, you know what, if we believe in Christ, he's not going to put us to shame. Verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. Over the last couple of weeks, several months, we've been teaching about the sovereignty of God. We've been teaching about election. We've been teaching about the doctrine of predestination. So what if, what if they're not chosen? <laughs> what if they're not elect? What happens then? All I can tell you is this. When it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it says that. That's exactly what it says. Logically, obviously, you can say that everyone includes the elect. That's who the everyone is. But on the other hand, that doesn't give us an indication that we go out and we just share with the elect. See, that's not Paul's message. Paul's message is, you know what? Everyone has this need, and we need to take this good news that was meant for all and share it with all. You let God sort that kind of stuff out. I mean, you know, you can sit up at night and try to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin if you want, but it's just a waste of time. I mean, clearly, those who come to Christ are going to be those who are elect. That's what the Bible says. But we don't know who they are. That's why we never give up praying for people. That's why we never give up evangelistic tasks and and reaching out to a lost and dying world. Because even if it's just one soul, beloved, just one person comes to Christ. That's more than worth it. We need to proclaim that message of forgiveness to the entire world. Secondly here, since the good news is for all, then we must proclaim it to all. That's what he says in verses 14 to 15. He says, how can they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him if they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? See, a lot of people say, well, the doctrine of election kind of undermines evangelism. It undermines the need to pray because, you know, if you teach the, the doctrine of election, then why do anything? Because, you know, that's not the doctrine of election. That's what I call fatalism. And that's not what the Bible teaches. 
And so Paul knew that. Paul understood that. So what Paul says here is Paul, who wrote so strongly about God's sovereignty and God's choice and election, to the point where he said, talked about Jacob and Esau, the choice of Jacob and the rejection of Esau, while they were still in the womb. He also wrote these wonderful verses about the need that we have to preach the gospel to all people. He wasn't contradicting himself here. Clearly, God chooses who will be saved, and he chooses the means by which they will be saved. Namely, the preaching of the gospel to them. And so Paul here is stringing together this logical list of questions to answer the process of how the gospel goes forth. And then he backs it up with scripture. So you work from the foundation outward. The process begins with sending out preachers. They preach. People hear. They believe. And then they call upon the name of the Lord. First thing here is we need to send. We should ask, be asking God to be sending out workers into the harvest. Because in verse 15 there he says, How will they preach unless they are sent? See, God saved Paul and appointed him as a minister and a witness here, sending him to the Gentiles, even though he's from this Jewish background. The church really acts as a secondary sender. God is the primary sender. And they affirm God's calling and they send him out. The goal is to take the gospel to every people, to every nation. That's the Great Commission. Those who are sent out need to sometimes cross cultural barriers, linguistic barriers. Why? So they can communicate the gospel. You think of our missionaries um, down in Papua New Guinea, 30-some years down. They're translating the Old Testament and the New Testament into an unknown language. No one else knew this language before they went there. Why would they spend 30 years to do this? Because they understand the importance of getting them the word of God. And they've seen fruit as a result of those people being able to take their own Bible in their own language and understand it and come to Christ. We should support such workers who go out financially, emotionally, in our prayer. And I'm proud to say as a church we do that. So we send them. Secondly, the preaching here, the sent ones proclaim the authoritative message of the king regarding the son. That, that word preacher or preacher is really mean, it means to herald. It means to herald a message. And they were sent out under the authority of the king to proclaim faithfully the king's message. The king would say, here, I want you to go out and tell the country people this. Okay, fine. And they went out and they said, thus say the king. And they would proclaim the message. They didn't go out there and make up their own message. They'd get their head cut off. They didn't go out to the countryside and go, well, these people don't seem, they don't think they, I don't think they'll like the king's message. I think I'll make it a little more easy. So I'm going to change the wording a little bit. No, they didn't do that. See, they might go out there and proclaim what the king said and the mob may kill them. They get so upset at them. But you know what? They'd rather die that way than going back and telling the king, well, I kind of changed up your message a little bit there, kingship. And uh, didn't really uh, communicate what you wanted, but you know, at least they didn't kill me. See, we need to be reminded when we're sharing the gospel, it's important that we're preaching the authoritative message of God. This isn't a message we make up on our own. We have to tell people that they have sinned against a holy God. We have to tell people that they're rightfully under God's judgment. And they need to come to the Savior. Well, thirdly here, quickly, hearing. Those who hear the preacher must understand what they hear. That implies that when they go, they must be able to communicate in the language of the people, the common hearers of the day. But also, it kind of communicates that they're not to really change the message up once again, so that it's not offensive. 
Do you know the message of the gospel is by itself offensive? The Bible claims that. Why is it so offensive to go out and preach the gospel? Because it simply confronts everybody's sin. I mean, people don't like to be called sinners. Especially unbelieving people. So as they sent out these ones to proclaim the gospel, the Bible says in various places that it's up to the Holy Spirit to open up the deaf ears of the hearers. It's not your eloquence as a preacher going out and sharing. It's not your expertise in evangelism or apologetics that's going to save anyone. It's God who's going to do it. He's going to transform their heart. He's going to open up their ears so they can understand the gospel maybe for the first time. Because the last time I checked, the Bible says, Paul says in in Corinthians, that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. So there has to be an enablement by God to do that. And it should always be done prayerfully. And then fourthly here, believing and calling on the Lord. The message must be believed to be effective. It must be believed. Paul uses believing in Christ and calling upon his name interchangeably there in verses 11 to 13. But in verse 14, he separates them to bring out both aspects of saving faith. People must believe in the sense of giving assent to the truth of the gospel or they will not call upon him for salvation. See, if you do not believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that God raised him from the dead, then you're not going to cry out to him to save you. So a person must believe intellectually that Jesus is the risen Savior. That's true. But also there has to be a need and a call out of his heart to save him or her from their sins. Because intellectual belief all by itself will not save you. There's a lot of people in the church today that believe in Jesus. As a Catholic, I believed in Jesus. I believe Jesus died on, on, on the cross. I believe that he was raised on the third day. I believe that one day he was coming back. But I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved. Ask yourself, is your faith more than just an intellectual assent to the things of God? Do you see God actively working in your heart? Then the last thing here, the message has to be believed Good news of good things. He says there, he's, he cites in, in, in verse 15, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, I never thought of feet as being something beautiful. <laughs> you know? I mean, especially in biblical times. They're usually dirty, dusty probably calloused. But see, the person has dirtied and calloused and maybe even bloodied their feet to bring you good news of good things. What is that good news? God will freely forgive you of all your sins through Jesus Christ if you simply believe and call out upon him to be saved. It's, It's just that simple. It really is. And when God is at work... He transforms that heart. See, the message is not if you clean up yourself and if you try hard to obey God and and then not sin and, and then eventually you might earn a spot in heaven. That's not good news. Any message of doing good works to earn salvation is never, ever good news. Why? Because it depends on sinful people. And sinful people inevitably fail and fall short. The good news is that whosoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that's the wonderful news, beloved, that we go out into this lost and dying world every week and we proclaim. And we can proclaim it in a myriad of ways. This last week I was sitting at the coffee shop talking to a a, a young Hispanic man about, about politics. So we got into this big political discussion. And I thought, okay, I know this isn't fruitful. How can I bring this back? And I knew, being Hispanic, he was probably 
from a Catholic background, so I asked him about the sanctity of life. And I began to transition from the whole abortion issue into the idea that, you know what, God created you. God cares for you. Have you ever thought about that? And it was able to leave him with just kind of a, a taste of the gospel because he had to go. But I'll see him again. I'm looking forward to my next conversation with him. See, the Bible's command to us is to go out and to share in whichever way we can the glorious gospel of Christ. There's an African proverb that says this, there is only one crime worse than murder on the desert. And that is to know where the water is and not tell him. My grandson a couple weeks ago went to youth camp and when he came back from youth camp he told his mom he actually told his youth pastor this but at camp he said you know what I'm starting to realize what we're to do as Christians what our task is I mean this is a 13 year old kid right he told his youth pastor he said you know before, before camp and everything before I heard these messages I guess the way I looked at it is that we were kind of in line and um, some people were on fire and I was kind of pointing to them hey there's a bucket of water over there Uh, you know you might want to put that fire out it's going to burn you up why don't you go get that bucket of water and, and pour it over yourself and he said now I understand you know what my role is not to sit there and watch these people burn and point to a bucket of water, but to go over and get the bucket of water and bring it back and douse them with it. I thought, wow. See, that's our goal. That's what we're called to do. I'm excited about the message Dave will be bringing while I'm gone. And Danny's going to be preaching too. Dave's message is going to be uh, centered around having compassion for the lost. Unless God changes things up, but that's what, what he told me. So, uh, be praying for, for Danny Vasquez as he, he preaches in a couple weeks on Moses. And then uh, Dave Bowen on uh, his message will be on the uh, 21st. And so we're, we're looking forward to that. And uh, let's just close in a word of prayer. And um, Lord, you know who's here this morning. You know whether they've cried out to you and called out to you for forgiveness of their sin. And asked for their salvation to be granted to them. Lord, only you know that. And Lord, we pray that you would um, speak your truth into these folks' hearts. Lord, I know it's, it's made an impact in my life this week, just studying, realizing that there's so many people who have yet to come to Christ, and the work is never done. And so, Father, we just remember the, the gals up in the Yakima Reservation as they share Christ with these young ones through the VBS program and even adults up there on the reservation, Lord, that somehow that you would grant salvation to these people upon hearing the gospel, that you would open their eyes. And Father, as we leave this place here today, that we would go out into a lost and dark, sometimes dreary world, sin-stained world, but we go out with a message of hope and forgiveness in Christ. And Lord, it doesn't matter who we're talking to, what kind of education background. Father, that, that news is good news, that their sins can be forgiven. So just turn to Christ. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.